You know, in modern-day Christendom around the world, it seems like the rapture would be an unwelcomed interruption. Life is so exciting and so fun here. And, and we're just in, in such an economic euphoria in the Western world. And we're in such a technological, I mean, it's almost, you can't wait till the next Christmas to see how many new gadgets are going to come out with and how much better everything's going to get. And the whole world is seemingly getting drawn into this whole cultural euphoria about the good times. And for the Christians to say, we want to go home, people are saying, why? It's too nice here. Who wants to go home? That's why I think a good dose of suffering and sickness and weakness and economic downturns is good for us. Because when you have nowhere to look but up, it's the greatest medicine for the church. But to best understand the hope of Christ's church, we need to go back to the world into which it was born. It would be great to see through the eyes of those who read the New Testament as it was written. We need to feel the sense of those carefully chosen words that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of this book to use. I want you to follow along now with me as I read to you 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I'm going to emphasize three little phrases, and I'm going to talk about them tonight. They've been really a blessing in my life. In fact, uh, so much so that a lot of people can sleep tonight. I've been preaching the sermon all week long. Uh, every time I was with a group, I was telling them how excited I was at what I found. So some of you have already heard this, but I want to share it with the rest of you. Look at verse 13. For we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We already saw that we're to be a contrast to the world, our hope of life eternal compared to the pagans' dismal uh, hopelessness. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And, and we saw that the Christian uh, message in our faith in Christ has changed our view of death in that we believe that death, uh, scripturally speaking, is only the body sleeping in the dust waiting for his call and the spirits instantly into Christ's presence. So that's our contrast. Now look at verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. The living uh, saints will not get there ahead of those who have already died. For the Lord himself, now look at this, will descend from heaven, number one, with a shout. Number two, with the voice of the archangel. And finally, with the trumpet of God. Now, that's interesting. Just think about that. I wanted to underline those. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now that's a... That's an interesting translation, but it doesn't say that. In Greek, it says they're going to stand up first. I want you to think about this for a minute. Uh, we, when I was at Quidneset, there was a cemetery built all the way around the church. Um, and the church building was just a rented piece of land in the middle of a cemetery. And all the old-timers used to say to me, when they'd go out of the church, they say they always look out at the quiet people. That's what they call the cemetery, the quiet people. And, you know, we don't, cemeteries, unless you're into the occult or something, aren't a big deal. I mean, you don't really like, a lot of people, they kind of, it's not a major thing to go walking through the cemetery unless you sketch gravestones. But there is a moment coming, and, and look back at verse uh, uh, 16, when the Lord himself descends from heaven, a shout is, is issued, the voice of the archangel is heard, and the trumpet of God sounds, and the Bible says that literally all those who are redeemed in Christ will stand up right out of the graves. I mean, they're going to materialize and, and corporeally stand up right out of the ground. 
And after that, I mean, it's going to be incredible. And, and I remember hearing an evangelist, I mentioned this about a year ago, but some of you weren't here, that uh, had lost his arm in World War II. And he was a great evangelist, and, and you didn't even notice he didn't have that arm. But what he said was that, that when he lost that arm in World War II, they actually had to amputate it on board the hospital ship. And he said, they did what you did in World War II. They just threw it overboard, and it just, you know, sharks got it or something out somewhere off some island out there. And he says a little bit later when he got home in, in Los Angeles that he had gangrene set in, and so they had to take off one of his toes, and he said, I guess they buried that in L.A. Then he got a little uh, further along, and, and uh, uh, diabetes, when he got to the military hospital in Atlanta, they had to take his foot off, and so he says he guesses that was buried down there. And he says, and then finally he says someday he's already got his grave plot, and he's going to be buried up in Minnesota. And he says, I can just see the event that's going to happen. He says, you know, the Lord's going to come down and descend with a shout, and he says instantly, he says, this arm's going to start coming up from the bottom of the ocean. And he says, and then all of a sudden that, that toe is going to whoop right out of the ground in L.A. And he said, it's going to run over toward Los An or, uh, Georgia and pick up the foot and back to Minnesota. And he says, and he says, he's going to stand up and his body's going to all be put together. And he's going to go up to meet the Lord and we're going to go right behind him. And you know, now listen to this, what it says. It says, to meet Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, again, that's an interesting word. It's not the normal word for clouds. It says uh, with clouds. And so it doesn't mean that we're all going to be hovering at about 5,000 to 30,000 feet or however high. I forget how high the different layers of clouds are, you know. But it doesn't mean we're all going to just be kind of hanging around up there. What, what this word really speaks of is myriads of objects that make clouds. I don't know if you've noticed... Um, how bugs can get so, so many of them. But when we were traveling uh, in October across the country, we actually went through, through clouds of bugs. And it just was like it was raining. And the kids thought it was an amazing thing, these splat, 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 splat on the windshield. And the whole front was full. And I'm not sure whether the bugs were migrating or if we were just in their house or what. But, but it was just clouds of these bugs in, in Ohio and other places. And it was really interesting. And I thought about how it's going to be all these bodies standing up out of the dust they're going to stand up from the dust, and then they're going to rise up to Christ in clouds of them, and they're going to join with us, the alive, uh, the living, who are joined up with those who are dead in Christ, and we meet the Lord and go with him. Very graphic what he's talking about. And it says we meet them in the air and we'll always be with the Lord, and we should comfort one another with these words. Three things. Look back at, at that 16th verse. A shout, voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. Now, keep your finger here. We're going to come back. But look at the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, or the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Because uh, one day, someone came up to me and they said, Oh, in my Bible reading, I read the 51st and 52nd verse. And I wondered if you'd explain something. And that's what really got me reading all this. And, and I read an awful lot of pages until I finally, for the first time, read this, and I never had seen it before. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, 51. This is the great resurrection chapter, and Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And you say, oh, wait a minute, how come the people in the Old Testament didn't know about the rapture? And how come, you know, because it says in verse 51 that the rapture is a mystery. A mystery is a mystery. That means it's something that before the time it was told, it wasn't known. It was a mystery. He said, I'm going to show you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Now that is the theme verse of our nursery ministry. Right? Not all the babies will sleep, but we will change them all. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. 
just checking if some of you were so thankful for those of you that serve in that wonderful ministry and, and uh, change those babies and everything else you do. No, he's talking about the Christians. He says we're not all going to die, but all of us will be transformed. Now look at this. In a moment, verse 52, 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to be a very quick, you know, a twinkling of an eye is very, very, just a, an instantaneous event where these three, uh, you know, shout and voice the archangel trumpet of God is going to occur. But look at this. At the last trumpet. Now, on that verse, I have read so many pages of writing that says that that all this this idea that the church is going out before the tribulation or the church is going to not go through the tribulation it's not true because they said the last trump is the last trump of the book of the revelation well which trumpet in the book of revelation is the last trumpet i mean there's trumpets blaring all the time it's just there's seven trumpets and there's a trumpet for this and there's a you know hallelujah and another trumpet for that and and i started reading and thought what what, which of the last trumpets is this? For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. And on and on it goes, talking about us getting our incorruptible celestial body. Okay, here's, and then let's go back to First Thessalonians so you don't get lost. Um, and that's where we're going to be most of the night. Let me explain something to you. The first canon of textual interpretation, the first law when you're reading the Bible, and I say this all the time, is... It's not what the Bible means to me. And it's not, we don't sit around in groups and everyone says, well, what does that mean to you? That's really one of the worst things to do is get a whole bunch of people around and say, what does that mean to you? You know, because, uh, I mean, to the Krishnas, it means something. The Baha'is, it means something else. And the Mormons, it means something else. It really doesn't matter what it means to you. What does it mean to God? And what did he mean when he wrote it is what we're trying to figure out. And so the first law of interpretation is, what did God mean to the people he wrote this to? Because we believe that all 66 of these books, every bit of it, all 1,189 chapters of this book, were written specifically to individuals, to people, to nations, or to churches, or to individuals in service for the Lord. And that letter was not an ethereal kind of vague, you know, wonder. It was a specific communication to them. And the first law of interpretation is, what did it mean to the person that got it? Boy, that answers all the questions about all these trumpets when we think about the world in which the apostle lived, and especially the Thessalonians and Corinthian people. Those people and those trumpets and the last trumpet and all that is very clear when we step back and look into the Roman world of the scriptures. It was a world of armies, legions, and soldiers. And that's why the apostle uses the army imagery so often to describe the Christian life. Now think about this. I mean, have you ever thought of all the army stuff in the Bible? Ephesians 6.10, verse 11. Uh, 10 says, be strong in the Lord, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. In fact, we're so close to it, you might as well look at it. It's so good. Turn back one book, two books, Ephesians 6.10. Um, I want you to see the army. Army, uh, you know, my children like army men. I always, when I'm walking through the house in the middle of the night in the dark, I end up stepping on one of those with their swords up, you know. <laughs> Or their rifle, I mean. And, and it's really hard when it's pitch black and you step on an army man because, you know, you're not sure if it's a copperhead or what they got in the house. You know, it's just those army men are just kind of omnipresent in our house. But put on, verse 11, the whole 
armor of God. Okay, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. We're talking about warfare here. Verse 14, stand therefore, girding your waist with truth, having put on, and here's another piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, shod your feet, wrap them up, put on those hobnail sandals that the soldiers wore, those metal uh, bottom sandals so that none of the sharpened sticks that the enemies would put out would stop them as the Roman uh, legions would march to battle. Verse 16, take a shield of faith to quench the fiery darts. Roman legionnaires were, were powerful soldiers, some of the best the world's ever seen. And one of their great weapons was they would they had these catapults. They had a catapult that could shoot 60 pounds of shot for a half a mile to the enemies. They had other catapults that could shoot large, massive cauldrons of burning material. They would take rab, rags and get them inflamed in oil, and then they would fire that into the town, and it would just rain down fire and start all the wood on fire and the people, too. And these fiery darts, and sometimes they would, they would have these... Uh, projectile pointed missiles that are dipped in oil and they would again get them burning and they would tighten those catapults and as the siege took place they'd fire those fiery darts and the sky would just be lit with all the burning projectiles coming down and they would find their marks and they would stick in buildings and start them on fire they would stick in people and start them on fire and those were the fiery darts a warfare metaphor continuing in verse 17 take the helmet the omnipresent helmet of warfare. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So armor, armor, breastplate, uh, sandals, shod, shield of faith, fiery darts, helmet, and sword. Very military. Second Timothy, uh, if you want to look there, I'm going to read Second Timothy chapter 2. Again, a big warfare chapter. In Second Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's giving him instructions about how to endure. And by the way, Timothy's a great role model. I mean, we have their superheroes, Paul and Peter, up here. And, boy, we all think we'll never be like them, like the Lord and like Paul and Peter and Daniel. Those guys are great. Boy, we can relate to Timothy. The guy was a crybaby. He was a mama's boy. He just was weak. He was always unsure of himself. You know, and that's more, you know, we can relate to that. And so Paul's kind of trying to get him all braced up here. And, and uh, of course, I'd cry, too, if I was pastoring a church of 50,000 people, which is what he had in Ephesus. I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, you know, uh, just speaking loud enough for him to hear you must have been amazing. But look at Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You, therefore, he's telling him, must endure hardship, what? As a good soldier. There's the army concept again. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse 4. No one engaged in warfare. There's that, that soldier deal again. Entangles himself with the affairs of life that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So among the many relationships we have to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our rock and he's our shield and he's our good shepherd. He's also the one that recruited us into the army. He's the captain. He's the commander-in-chief. And so this, this concept is, is this idea of warfare and that when you get saved, among other things, you become a soldier in God's army. Okay? Now, I want to read something that's fascinating to, to me, and I hope it will be to you. Because one of the most penetrating glimpses into the Roman legions, you know, the, these warriors with their hats and the feathers and their big shields and, and all that stuff that we've seen in television and, and imagined as we read them, those legionnaires who filled the world of the Bible are best described to us by a reporter 
who traveled with the Roman legions from AD 67 to AD 73 when they destroyed the Jewish people. One man, a Jew, a turncoat in their eyes, named Josephus, went with the legions of Titus and Vespasian and went through systematically as they destroyed Galilee, Judea, and finally Jerusalem and then swept down and knocked out Masada and cleaned up the Jewish people and deported. They, they, they actually slaughtered hundreds of thousands in Jerusalem alone. It was a very awful time. And he went along as the CNN man of the day and reported and wrote his report for the news of everything they did each day. And that is still existing today. It's called the writings of Josephus. You've probably heard of Josephus. Well, that's what he was. He was the CNN man of the day. And he was traveling with the enemy, as it were. And he was writing his report. And I, I found this one page in an old book, in fact, uh, in the Situate Art Fair up in Rhode Island. They always sell all these old books, and there's just, every October, they're on a table. And for a dime, I found this hundred and some year old copy of, of Josephus' report of traveling in the Roman army. And this is what it says as he writes his personal report as a guest living for several years with the legions who destroyed Galilee, Jerusalem, and Judea from AD 67 to 73. And this is fascinating. When I get the important part, you'll notice they get all excited. Okay? This is what he says. Now when they go out of their camp, the trumpet gives a sound, at which time nobody will lie still. But at their first intimation, they take down their tents, and all is made ready for the going out. Then do the trumpets sound again a second time. This is to order them to get ready for the march. They don't lay their bag, and then they do lay their baggage suddenly upon their mules and other beasts of burdens, and they stand at the place of the starting in their regiments, ready to march, when also they set fire to their camp. And this they do because it would be easy for them to erect another camp, and they may never be of use, their old camp, for their enemies. Then do the trumpets give a third sound in order to excite those that on any account are of a little tardiness, that one may be out of his rank, so that when the army marches, they will be ready. Then do the crier, standing at the general's right hand, ask them thrice in their own language whether they be now ready to go out or not. To which they reply, as often with a loud and cheerful voice, saying, We are ready. Wow. Did you realize that's what the army did back then? They blow a trumpet. And that meant, pull up your tent stakes, roll up your tent, get your bag ready, put it into your pack, lay all of your gear, all of your special gear you need for warfare onto your mule or onto your beast of burden or onto the cart that is prepared for that. That's the first trumpet. The second trumpet means, hey, we're getting close to going. Get ready. Fall in line. Get in your regiment. Get behind your leader. The third trumpet was that they were getting ready to step forward. But before they stepped forward, at the general's right hand, the crier would say, are you ready? And they would shout. And, and listen to what Josephus said. And this they do almost before the question is asked them. And this they do, answering is filled with a kind of martial fury. And at the same time, they so cry out, they lift up their right hand also saying, we are ready. You know what they're saying, Mr. General, Mr. Leader? Our life is your life. Our days are your days. Our, our, our whole being is so tied to yours that what you want, we want. We're ready to follow you wherever you go. 
And then Josephus said this, And then when they come to a battle, the whole army is but one body. So well coupled together are their ranks. So sudden are their turnings about. So sharp is their hearing as to what orders are given them. So quick their sights are set on their ensigns. And so able are their hands when they set to work. Whereby it comes to pass that what they do is done quickly. And so that when they suffer, they bear it with the greatest of patience. Now, 2 Timothy, you were in chapter 2. Look at chapter 4 with me. I want to see if you can kind of hear this, this idea. Do you hear Paul confidently joining in the chorus of Commander-in-Chief Jesus? Right hand up, we're ready. I'm ready. My life is so attached to yours, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to march, I'm ready to suffer, I'm ready to fight, I'm, re- I, I'm ready for whatever. And almost before the Lord calls, in fact, before the Lord called, Paul had his hand up, he's saying, I'm ready. Listen to him in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Remember the drink offering? The drink offering is where the priest took the wine and went out, into the courtyard of the tabernacle and he would pour it out onto the parched sand and when he poured it out it would go down and go across the altar and spill down and be lapped up and and gone into the sands of the desert couldn't get it back it wasn't like the other offerings where there was some food left to eat where you'd get something out of them the drink offering was utterly poured out do you remember David when those three mighty men when David just in a moment says, oh, when he was fighting the Philistines, he said, oh, if I could just have some water from my hometown well at Bethlehem, it was so good. And three mighty men went against all the Philistine army, broke through the lines, hacking their way through, and while two of them were fighting off at the rear, one of them drew up a pail of water, and then they all three dashed back and fought their way through the army again, and they brought it to David. Remember that? You know what David did? The greatest thing he'd do with it, he dumped it out. You know, if he'd have drank it, he would have lost it. But when he dumped it out, he gave it to the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, if I kept my life, if I pampered myself, if I did everything so I could live as long as possible and look as nice as possible, I would have lost my life. But he said, I didn't do that. He says, I poured my life out for you. I poured myself out as a drink offering for you. And now, he says, I can hear the trumpet. The time of my, and he uses a word, only for Romans breaking their camps. Here's the old military imagery again. And the Apostle Paul says, I heard the trumpet. The commander's saying it's time to go. He says, the time of my marching out has come. He says, I've, there's the soldier thing, and I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. He says, and henceforth there's laid up for me that crown I'm going to get from my captain, my commander-in-chief, my general from the Lord himself. He says, and I can see him down in the Mamertine prison, 
underground and the dampness right on the Roman. And you know why this is so significant? If you know anything about the positioning of the Mamertine prison where Paul spent his last days before they executed him, it was facing, and there's a little tiny air hole where you could hear the sounds of the Forum of Rome, the epicenter of the whole Roman Empire, where the golden mile marker marked that all roads led back to Rome. And that's where these legionnaires would all march back from the furthest reaches of the empire, from Britain and from Gaul, from northern Africa, from Persia, from up in the Caucasus Mountains, and they would march back, and they would stand there, and their commander would sound the trumpet, and they would say, we're ready to go from here anywhere. And down underneath the ground in the stone pit of the Mamertine prison, one lone soldier in the dark looks up, and in the darkness he could see Christ. And he said, I'm ready too. I've lived my whole life for you. I'm ready to go. I'm ready. Look at the very last verse of the Bible with me for just a second, because we hear the same word from another apostle. The very last, actually two verses, Revelation 22. Kind of neat. Because we hear Paul confidently joining in the I'm ready, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go chorus. But also, the apostle John says the same thing in Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. And now John's talking. And look what he says. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. I'm waiting for you. He said, I'm on the island of Patmos. I've suffered for you. I see another right hand going up to the general saying, We're ready. Ready to go home. Well, Paul says, uh, I tell you a mystery. We're not going to all sleep, but we're all going to be changed at the last trump. Real quickly, we have just a few minutes. I want to take you on a journey, and I'm going to read all these, and you can turn to them if you want. But I want to explain to you what the Bible says this rapture is all about. You hear about it. The word's not in the Bible, but the Greek word harpazo is in the Bible many times. And I want to explain to you what that word means. Because the rapture, even though the, the English word rapture is not used in the New Testament, it is the word harpazo, which means to be caught up. The Latin word rapto means to seize or to carry off, and from it we get our English word rapture. And to understand the rapture, we need to see the various meanings of the Greek word that is translated, caught up, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with that shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. At the last trump, we start marching out to him. Of course, we should already be in readiness, saying we're ready to go. And it says, And the Lord will gather them up. He snatches us up. We are caught up together with him. There's the word harpazo in 4.17. Caught up together with him. Now, now what does that mean, to be caught up with him? Number one, the rapture is a sudden event because we will be caught away speedily. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, that's the first meaning of that word. It says this in Acts 8.39. It says, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Hey, there's the same word. He raptured Philip. What did he do with him? Because a lot of people say, what's this rapture thing? It never occurs anywhere in the Bible. I never heard of that. Well, it was all through the Bible. I mean, Elijah was raptured out of this world in a fiery chariot. God just does it in a lot of different ways. Enoch was taken out of this world, too. Those are both, by the way, pictures of what's going to happen to us. But Philip was a picture where the Lord snatched him from out in the desert in Gaza and took him over and put him on the coast in Azotus. We're talking about many miles, and the Spirit of God just 
He didn't need a car. He didn't need an airplane. He didn't need a helicopter. The Spirit of God just went whoop and picked him up and whoop, put him over there. And that's what it says. It says he was caught away. And the, the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. The Spirit caught away Philip after he had led the Ethiopian to Christ. And when the Lord returns in the air, we who are alive will be caught away quickly. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says it will be in the twinkling of an eye. And what that means is, the rapture is such a sudden event when we're caught away speedily. Listen, we should live each moment expecting our Lord's return lest he come and find us out of his will. Do you see what governed the first century Christians' lives? They said, this is going to happen so quick, I'm not going to have time you know, to, to hide stuff that I shouldn't be playing with. I'm not going to have time to real quickly get my Bible and put on my church faith and get ready to go. And I'm not going to have time. So I should just be ready all the time. I should be always in that state. This is what the scriptures say, and you might want to write this down on this speedily thing. 1 John 3 says this, verses 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it hasn't been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, here's the catch. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, his hope in Christ, listen, purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. How did Jesus live? We read it this morning in Psalm 40, because Jesus quoted that in his ministry. He said, God, I came to do your will. I didn't come to do my own thing. I came to do your will. I didn't come to, to just have all the fun you can have in life. I came to do your will. I came. You gave me a body to do your will. I came to do your will. The perfect example for us how we should live here on earth. Now, we, we aren't Jesus, and we won't perfectly fulfill the will of God. But God doesn't look at what we do so much as what we are in our hearts decided to be. And did you know that the Christian life is so much internal decisions we make that slowly work themselves out in actions. Verse 3 of 1 John 3, have you and I decided because of our hope of this speedy, sudden pulling out of this world by Jesus, we know not when, that we are going to be purifying ourselves to be like he is pure? That should be the first effect of the rapture in our lives. The second one is in John 6:15. another use of this word, rapto, uh, Harpazo, and it says in John six fifteen, and I better turn there and read it to you. Um, six fifteen. Here we go. Um, and Jesus therefore perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. This is during his feeding of the five thousand. He withdrew himself to the mountain by himself alone. Now this time when that word harpazo is used, it speaks of a climactic event when, when you're seized by force. And Jesus saw the, the 5,000 men kind of talking among themselves. There were 5,000 families there, 30,000 plus people. And he could see them talking. What they were saying is, we're going to grab this guy, we're going to put him on our shoulders, we're going to march into Jerusalem, and we're just going to storm the barracks of the Romans. We're going to take back our city, and he's going to be our king. And if any of those Romans kill us, he can heal us. And if we don't have food, he'll make the food. Wow, this is great. And it was a 
climactic seizing that, that is the word that's used for uh, harpazo. The rapture is going to be a climactic event because we will be seized by force out of this world. Now, I want you to think about something. Who's the God of this world? Yeah, Satan. Do you think he wants us out from under his, his nefarious, insidious, ruinous rule? I mean, he wants to destroy as many Christians. He's, he's going around trying to eat us. Do you think he wants Jesus to get us out of here and set us free? And I wonder if this concept doesn't suggest that Satan and his armies will try to keep us from leaving the earth. And that's why it's a sudden seizing when God comes down and he says, they're mine, and he takes them out. And that's what the context of this word is, that it is a climactic, very dramatic, and very power-filled seizure out of the earth. Because Satan doesn't want us to be eternally worshiping God. He wants rather to be devouring us and he wants to be hindering us. And so that's probably the meaning, but it could suggest that some of the saints will be so attached to the world that they literally have to be dragged out. That's what it could mean. Remember Lot? He had to be bodily carried out of Sodom by the angels. They were pulling him because he didn't want to leave the world. Now you can tell, I take it that Satan's trying to hold us back, but it's very possible that some people are so attached to this place that the rapture would be an unwelcomed interruption. That's not what the Lord wants it to be. Thirdly, and, and uh, this is in 1 Thessalonians, and if you're lost, just go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because I like this. It says that the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with a voice, the archangel to take us up, to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll always be with the Lord. And the third thing that this word harpazo means is that it's an intimate event when we are claimed by Jesus as his very own. He comes for his own. He comes for his bride. It's an intimate event. He is coming, and we are engaged to him. And he says, I'm coming because I love you, because I want you, because I want you with me. I'm coming to sweep you up and carry you away. You're my beloved. You're the one that I love so much. I came down. I paid the ransom price. I've gone back. I've prepared a place for you. I've prepared our honeymoon spot. Now I'm coming to marry you to take you up to be with me. It's a very intimate concept, this rapture concept. It's an intimate concept of one who loves us coming to get his own. And that's why the Apostle John at the end of Revelation says, even so come, Lord Jesus. He says, I'm longing for you as much as you love me. I'm longing for you. I have a longing in my heart. The rapture is an intimate event, for we will be claimed by Jesus as his very own. And this views the rapture from our Lord's point of view as he comes to claim us as his bride. But also, fourthly, this word harpazo is a needed event because Jesus will move us to a new place. It says that we may be, and it says that at the end of verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture occurs that we should be with the Lord. I'll tell you what, right now we're not with the Lord. He's with us, we're not with him. We're still down here. We're still down here surrounded by the world, our flesh, the devil. We've been set free from the penalty of sin. It'll never be held against us. God will never play our sins on the big screen, and he won't point them out to us again. In heaven, we're not going to face the music. We're going to have to answer for all the wicked stuff we did. It's erased. And we've been set free from the power of sin. And more every day, we're seeing in Romans 6.22 that he is delivering us from the servitude to sin, and we have been set free. 
but we're still in the presence of sin. We're still in a universe that's groaning because of the curse of sin. We're still encased in flesh that is trying its best to pull us back toward the earth and not toward God. So the rapture is a needed event because he needs for us to be with him. Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 12 to describe his trip to heaven. And it says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, Paul said, I knew a man who in 14 years ago, uh, whether in the body I don't know or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. There's the word rapture. Paul says, I was taken. God whooped me right out of this world and swooped me up to heaven. And listen what he said. And I was caught up into paradise. And I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. He got to see heaven. And he says, I can't even tell you what I saw. He says, you wouldn't want to stay around here. You'd go jump off a cliff somewhere. It's so wonderful. He says, I'm not going to tell you about it. He said, it's inexpressible. He said, it's so delightful. And he said, God pulled me out of here so I could see it briefly. And, and if you look at the chronology, this is basically at the same time that he was stoned to death. So it's very possible that, that Lystra and Iconium and Derby, when they dragged him out of the city and they stoned Paul, that momentarily the Lord let him see heaven, and then he resurrected him back and put him back there. It doesn't matter if that's when it was or not, but it's very possible. But Jesus says, I have gone, I have, I have gone away to prepare a home for you, and I'm coming. I want to take you to that glorious place. He says, I want you to be pilgrims, strangers. I want you to be looking for me, longing for me. You need to go home. You shouldn't be a home here. Do you think that's why the songwriter said, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through? Yeah, it's very interesting. One of the reasons that, that it's, it's a lot of fun to travel is when you travel, you're very streamlined and limited. You don't have a lot of stuff. I mean, you just have your little bag. And you just always just put everything back in and you go. And you don't have to be, you know, doing all this stuff you do at home where, where you have to maintain all the stuff. And traveling's a reminder that we're pilgrims and strangers, that we're ready to go at any time and take off to be with him. And that's why, fourthly, the rapture, this word harpazo, speaks of a needed event because Jesus needs to move us to that new place he's prepared. But finally, the rapture is a timely event because we're going to be rescued from danger. And I want to read to you Acts 23.10. That's the last time this word occurs in all these occurrences that I'm taking you through. This is just a word study of the word rapture. It says, and in, in the Apostle Paul was back in Jerusalem, and, and uh, the people are stirred up, and they're trying to get him. And it says in Acts 23.10, a great dissension was developing, and the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. Remember, all the Jews were beating on him and, and pulling on him, and, and they were going to kill him. And so he ordered the troops to go down and rapture him. That's the word, harpazo him. You know what that is? Rescue from danger. So the rapture is, number one, a sudden event where we're caught away quickly. Number two, it's a climactic event because we're seized by force. Number three, it's an intimate event because we're claimed by Jesus. Number four, it's a needed event because Jesus wants to take us home. And finally, it's a timely event because we're rescued from danger. Now listen, this suggests that the church will be taken home before the tribulation comes to the world from God. That's why it says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, right after the rapture is listed, it says in 5.9, God has not destined Christians for his wrath. 
He says, I don't have that on the itinerary for you. I am not going to put you through the unleashing of the demons. I'm not going to put you through the incarnation of Satan. I'm not going to put you through the time when I ultimately sunburn the planet, when I destroy a third of all the vegetation, when I kill half of all the people, when all the water is poisoned and people are dying of thirst, when the demons are scaring them to death. I'm not planning on leaving you there for that. Isn't that great? That's what it's all about. It's a timely event. We're going to be rescued from danger. Well, the scriptures are replete with this message that Christ is coming. Christ's second coming is a dominant theme. He talks so much about his coming. Of the 660 prophecies about Christ, 109 were filled at his first coming, but there are 220 more yet to be filled at his second coming. Of the 7,900 verses in the New Testament, 330 of them are about Jesus returning. Next to the subject of faith, no subject to discuss more in the Bible than, or in the New Testament than the coming of Christ. For every time Jesus' first coming is mentioned in the New Testament, his second coming is mentioned eight times. For every time the atonement is mentioned, his second coming is mentioned twice. The Lord himself personally referred to the fact he's coming back 21 times, and he said 50 times, I want you to be ready for my return. Well, he's coming back, and the scriptures tell us he's coming back speedily. And the scriptures tell us that when he comes back speedily, he's going to intimately take us into his presence. He's going to take us where we need to be in his presence. He's going to rescue us from danger, and he's going to let us be finally like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's why the early church were so thrilled with the thought of Christ's return. And that's why the military metaphor was used, that the army lining up at the first trumpet, getting into the regiments at the second trumpet, and taking that step forward as their commander said, Are you ready? And they raised their hand and they said, We are ready. Now, you want to know the best way to live in Tulsa or Broken Arrow or wherever you live? Looking up the Lord saying, I'm ready to go home. I'm living constantly on, on call for your coming. I'm working in my job, but I'm ready to go home. I'm being a good steward. I'm getting ready for retirement, but in the back of my mind, I know there's a greater calling coming. I, I, yes, I, I'm taking care of my family, but I know there's something greater to do, and that is that I should live my life expecting of your return. I'm ready to go home. That's what good soldiers say to Jesus. Is that what you're saying in your heart? Let's bow before the Lord. We're ready to go home, Lord Jesus. It's necessary for us to remain here because we have work to do, but it would be better to depart, far better. But Lord, until you come or call us home through the valley of the shadow of death, both are glorious personal taking us out of this world both are wonderful neither is better than the other I am ready for your coming I am ready for your calling we are ready O Christ for your coming in the clouds or for your calling us through the valley of the shadow of death because we are standing as your soldiers and we're saying we're ready Lord you're our leader. Lord, 
we're able, our spirits are thine. Remold and make us like you divine. Help us to be stirred as they were stirred, to be listening for the trumpet as they were listening for the trumpet, to be not putting our tent stakes too deep because when that trumpet sounds, we've got to pull them up. Help us to be loosely attached to this world and help us to be longing to see you, our friend and our beloved, as you take us as your bride to be home with you. In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.